Good morning, everyone. All right, it's great to see you all here uh, this morning. So we're in the book of Mark, continuing to be in the book of Mark, and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through actually Mark 9-1. So if you want to get your Bible out to that area or to get your app out to come along with us, that would be, that would be great. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are aware of the Tour de France that happens every year about this time, but it's actually taking place right now, and it's probably the biggest sporting event in the country of France that takes place each and every year. It's literally an incredible event. There's 21 stages that take place in depending on the year, 23 days or 24 days. These guys bicycle 2,200 miles in those 21 days. They go up hills, well, mountains that are 8,000 feet high with grades that are ridiculous at high speeds. It's, it's absolutely incredible. In fact, this year, they're, right now, they just finished stage 14, so they got Seven stages to go. What's so incredible about this race is if you followed this year's race, there's two guys that are 10 seconds apart um, for first place. And then you have professional riders that are like two hours behind them <laughs> as far as time in the race. It's just incredible. We have the Tour of Utah that's becoming more popular, but there's nothing like the Tour de France. And there's actually a Netflix um, documentary series right now on last year's Tour de France. And it gives a really good picture of what takes place in that race. And one thing that you'll walk away from and with, if you watch that documentary or if you watch the race or if you ever ride your bike 100 miles for 20 straight days, there'll be one thing that you walk away with, and that is that the bicyclists suffer. They suffer greatly. There's not one rider that does not go into it without knowing they are going to pay a cost. Not only are they paying the cost of sacrificing other things while they train, but they're actually also sacrificing the fact that they're doing all of this knowing that they're gonna suffer. They know they're gonna suffer. Not much different in the world of physical fitness. CrossFit is one of the many gyms, but it's, it's not a joke. Um, if you belong to CrossFit, you are committed to suffering. You really are. I don't know how many of you are aware of CrossFit. Our company that I used to work for before I retired um, said you could, you know, they wanted to sponsor and have us sign up to be in a gym, and so people got excited about it, and there's a lot of people that signed up initially, but it didn't take long before there was only like three or four people that were still doing it. Why? because the cost to pay was too high. 
And there is also a cost to pay when we follow Jesus. And in our culture, sometimes we lose that picture of that because in our culture, there's a lot of focus on Jesus being our friend, which is true. I grew up in the church, and there was a song that I remember was called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And that's true, but it's probably not the greatest title that we could be used when we're talking about following Jesus. You know, Romans 10.9 doesn't say that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your friend, you shall be saved. It says when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. But before we look at what that cost is to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, it would be good for us to take a moment and look at the cost that Jesus paid because he also suffered and paid a cost. So that's where we begin today in Mark 8.31. It says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Last week, we finally saw the disciples get it. If you heard last week, the focus was on the fact that Peter finally declared that Jesus was the Messiah. He finally clicked in his head that he, Jesus, was the Messiah. And so now, with this identity known, Jesus uses Peter's declaration of faith as a springboard to talk about what his mission is. And that mission was to suffer, to die, and to be raised again. Now, on the surface, this doesn't make any sense, if you think about it, and it didn't make any sense to Peter. He had just declared that Jesus was Messiah, and he realized that this was God incarnate who had come to earth, he had arrived on the scene of history, he had shown his power over nature. We've, the last several, several weeks, we've looked at Jesus and his power over nature, over illness, over disease, over evil forces, over life and death. And yet all of a sudden, he communicates that his mission is to suffer. It didn't make any sense, and yet that's what he communicated. Pillar New Testament commentary states, Not only Jesus, does Jesus not fit the messianic stereotype, he defines his mission in scandalous contrast to it. The meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, but about rejection, suffering, and death. Never in Israel was it heard that the Messiah should suffer. There is, of course, the image of the suffering servant in Isaiah, but there's no evidence that the servant of the Lord texts were ever associated with the Messiah. So not only was Jesus to suffer, but he was to be rejected. And I don't know about you, but I think being rejected may cause more emotional pain in us than the pain that comes from physical suffering. I mean, look at 
who rejected Jesus? The elders, the leading priests, not just priests, but the leading priests, and those that taught the law. It would be comparable to us being rejected by those that we have high regard for, for those that we respect, for those that play an important role in our lives. And that's not an easy path to go down. Here's where I wanted to go with this commentary. It says, it's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or aberration of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing them to render service to God. That's tough to take on. That's tough to stand against without caving, without just wanting to go and disappear. The suffering and rejection made, like I said, no sense to Peter. It didn't make any sense to those that understood the Jewish faith. They believed that the Messiah would appear and that he would enter in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and yet this is not what seemed to be taking place. It contradicted what Peter believed should be happening. And so what does, what does Peter do? Well, let's continue on in our scripture. It says, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, and which, by the way, is the first time that Jesus is talking openly about this subject matter. If you remember, throughout Mark so far, Jesus has been saying, hey, we can't, don't. If the people that he's healed and the people that have had demons, Jesus has said, please don't announce who I am because it's not my time yet. And now it is time. The countdown to his suffering has begun. And so Peter takes him aside and begins to reprimand him for saying such things. I don't like this phrase too much, but are you serious? Here Peter is just declaring that this is the Messiah, God, and here he is saying, hey, you know what, I want to pull you aside. How many of you would pull aside the CEO of your company and say, hey, could you come over here for a minute? I, I need to tell you that you're wrong. I, I would never do that. But Peter does. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. And maybe he turned because Peter was the spokesperson, and he wanted to include them in the conversation. He didn't want it hidden. Or maybe he looked at them because he wondered what would happen if he followed what Peter said with the disciples. Then Jesus reprimanded Peter. He said, get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. I don't want you to miss this. If you 
don't take anything else from this message. I don't want you to miss this. There will always be those in your life that will tell you you do not have to pay the cost. And many times, it's those that are closest to you. Peter was close to Jesus. And he told Jesus he didn't have to pay the cost. But he wasn't the only one that told Jesus he didn't have to pay the cost. Who else told Jesus he didn't have to pay the cost? Well, Satan himself did. Back in Matthew, we could read this, and it says, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Get this. Jesus could have gained the entire world without going to the cross, without suffering. He could have. Now, if he took the shortcut, it would cost him his soul, but he didn't have to suffer. But regardless, he says this to Peter, just like he said to Satan. He said, be gone, Satan. The truth is, even those that tell us that there's no cost to be paid are wrong. There's always a cost to be paid. It's just different. For Jesus, the difference was that it would have cost him his soul rather than suffering. Well, it ends up that it's actually not that different for us. Jesus goes on in this passage to say that if we do not pay the cost, if we do not understand what it means to follow him, we too can lose our soul. Matthew 8:34. then calling the crowd to join his disciples. So this message is not just for the disciples, it's for everyone. It's for us today too. He said, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up on your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So what is the cost that we are to pay? What does it mean to pick up our cross? What does it mean to give up our lives? What is included in this suffering that we are called to do as followers of Jesus? Well, for Mark's readers, at the time that this was written, it would have meant immediate persecution. This was written in Rome. It was the time of Nero, and it wouldn't be long before he would soon crucify and burn Christians because he believed that they attempted to set fire to Rome. In Christendom today, and in my experience in the church being now 50 years, 
when discussing paying the cost, it always comes out as a question like this. It always comes out to like, like this is the question. Are you willing to suffer and be persecuted? Are you willing to be martyred for Jesus? Are you willing if one day somebody comes to your door and wants to take all your possessions and take your job? Are you willing to, to suffer? It's always presented as something in the future that we may have to pay a cost and suffer. But being a follower of Jesus is not about a cost in the future. It is about a cost we pay now. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, if you love something, let it go, and if it comes back to you, it's yours forever. Now that's not scripture, <laughs> but many of you have heard that. I wanna focus on the, the first part of that. The first part of it being, if you love something, let it go. How, when you love something or someone and you let it go, most of us have had that experience. And most of us have had a lot of pain attached to that. I mean, it tears at your soul. It is even sometimes hard to breathe when you're letting that go. Well, what Jesus is saying here is, is he wants, if we want to follow him, we need not to just let something go. We need to let ourselves go, our lives go. The Greek word used for life here is psyche, which is and means your spirit, your mind, your soul. It's not just about your physical being. It's about your total entity. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says it this way, by denial of self, Jesus did not mean to deny oneself something, but to renounce self, to cease to make self the object of one's life and actions. God, not self, must be at the center of life. When we're confronted with the call to discipleship, disciples don't have a both and choice. They have an either or choice. It's not both me and Jesus, it's either me or Jesus. He claims total whole commitment from us. There's not a separation of the secular and sacred. There's not a separation of the natural life versus the religious life. He desires all of us. Back to experiencing that pain when we let something go that we love. It makes me think of the fact of, do we have pain? Have we experienced that same pain or that same struggle when we've given our lives over to Jesus? There's a saying that says that um, you can, uh, a problem with dying to self is that it keeps rising from the dead, keeps coming back up. But how many of us have felt that pain, that struggle? And if we haven't felt that pain or struggle, you know, what, is, what does that mean? Does that 
have we really made that commitment? Have we considered that cost? Or is Jesus just our friend? Scripture goes on and says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Embarrassment, fear often stop us from moving forward. But Jesus puts things in perspective, and this is a pretty long passage, but it's important passage. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. If you ever wanted to know where this scripture about the hairs on your head is, it's right here. It's the only place. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. It's pretty clear. And you may ask yourself, well, why should I pay the cost? Why should I give up me? Why should I be the one of few that signs up for this? Well, everybody else doesn't make that commitment. Well, what is, what's the result? Why do it? Well, let's first look at the result of Jesus paying the cost, and then we can look at the result of us paying the cost. What was the result of Jesus paying the cost and suffering? Well, first, he paid the price for us. Now, that isn't mean that sin isn't important, that like we could just throw sin away because he paid the price, that that's fine, that, we are, that we're, we're like that. But the issue is that there's no one else that could pay the price. That's the issue. It's not that it's not important, it's so important that there's no other way to God who is holy because we're not righteous. It's only Jesus that is righteous and can pay the price for us to have a relationship with God. Ephesians 2.20 says that he is now seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and power and authority and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And all things were put in subjection under his feet. Scripture says that he will return in glory. So what is the result 
of us paying the price, of us sacrificing, of suffering, of, of giving our life to Jesus. There's a couple scriptures that are very clear about this that you need to hear. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Philippians 3.21, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory? Colossians 3.4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Romans 9.23 says that we were prepared beforehand for glory. Interestingly, Jesus didn't leave those he initially spoke these hard words to without a taste of what that future glory would look like. So we see in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Some people have struggled with this passage because they think that it refers to Jesus' second coming, and they're saying, well, wait a second, none of these people that were here um, are still there, and Jesus hasn't returned, so Scripture must be wrong. But if you look at the context of this passage, it doesn't have to do with Jesus' second coming, it has to do with his death and his resurrection, which did transpire in their lifetime. In fact, many of them were standing there when they witnessed Jesus being taken up into heaven in his resurrected body. We too, this is important, we too are not left without a taste of what that glory is. We have been given the Holy Spirit and there's a scripture 2 Corinthians that speaks strongly to this. It says, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. In almost every episode of that documentary on the tour of Tour de France, it always ends with the guy that's won the race for the day. And that's like a huge, huge deal if you win a stage of this race. And every interview with the winner, he's crying. He's not crying because of the pain that he's obviously feeling at the moment, which he is. And he's not crying because he's thinking about all the things he had to give up. He's crying because of the exhilaration 
of winning the prize. Paul says, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. May this be our attitude. May we be willing to pay the cost. May we be willing to let go of our life and know that the life that comes back to us is much more abundant, much more overflowing, beyond comprehension. And at the end of our race, I can guarantee you that it will end with your tears of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you um, for your word. Lord, you do call us to commit our lives to you. Um, there's no two ways about it. You desire um, us to live for you. And Lord, there's a price to pay for that. It's the daily price. And Father, I pray that we're willing to consider the costs. Lord, help us keep the cries in focus. Help us to remember what the end will be all about. And that that will be that we are with you in a glorified body forever. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.